all the people that are like doing work to get more people on bikes safely, those are the pioneers. And those are the people that are doing the grunt work to make it so, you know, the rest of us can go out and enjoy themselves on bikes. And so I, I give a, a shout out to, to the advocates, you know, without them, you know, we'd be, we'd be riding in fewer places and we'd have fewer people on bikes and, you know, the world really can be saved with more people on bikes. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 126 features Gary Gleason the Vice President of Sales for WTB Components. Gary has been an industry veteran for well over two decades, and WTB Components has been a leader in advocacy not only for mountain biking, but for all areas of cycling. Gary provides a lot of historical context regarding why advocacy is a core component to how WTB operates. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit.com will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. The temperatures are finally starting to warm up here in the Midwest, so I've been starting to wear the Kettle Mountain Short Sleeve Wayward Active Top while mountain biking. The Wayward Active Top is super breathable for maximum comfort and it has a minimalist design so you can pick your kids up from school when you're done riding without looking like a Power Ranger. You can purchase the Wayward Active Top and all of the other fine Kettle Mountain apparel at www.ketlmtn.com backslash josh or hit the link in the show notes and you'll be supporting the Trail Effect podcast in the process. Use the code TRAILPOD when checking out for a 20% discount on all Kettle Mountain apparel. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all of the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. Now on to Trail Effect with Gary Gleason of WTB Components. We are now anything you say is on record in the in the court of mountain biking how's it going today gary it's going great how about you it's going good wrapped up a day of work early today and here we are yeah gonna put out another episode of trail effect and learn about wtb and yourself mr gary gleason all right all right hopefully it'll be entertaining for you and your audience I have a feeling it could be because you've came up at least on uh, the Greg Williams interview and potentially, I don't remember if you came up to, while talking to Marty Scheel while we were recording or while we weren't recording, but I've definitely talked about you with Marty Scheel too. And both have been on the podcast and I was able to see Marty and talk to him quite a bit in person in Reno last week. Oh, great. Cool. Yeah. You know, those guys are family and, you know, we've been, we've been, uh, in this space of, of mountain bikes together for, you know, I mean, Greg and I have been friends since the 
mid nineties. And so there's a lot comes with that, you know? So, uh, yeah. Um, love those guys. I have heard a lot comes with that. Even something called the Yuba Invitational came along with that one time. <laughs> that always seems to pop up, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a, uh, you know, the, uh, the Charlie Brown, uh, Snoopy river run, um, taken to a mountain bike festival. Yeah. It was, it was something else. I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as before I interviewed Greg, I have a friend that works at his shop and, uh, he's actually the shop manager, a guy that I grew up mountain biking with here in Wisconsin, Mason. Oh, wow. Okay. Great. I love Mason. Yeah. yeah. And I, I sent Mason a message. I'm like, what kind of dirt do you have on Greg that I can bring up during the show? He's like, ask him about the Yuba Invitational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was something else. And you know, in retrospect or in hindsight, I should say, uh all of us that participated that had a little meat on our bones fared pretty well. It was the skinny athletes that really um got bumped and bruised more than anything. So, uh power to the people that uh drink IPA and, you know, maybe have seconds sometimes because it played to our favor that day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Let's get your backstory and kind of like how you got into mountain biking specifically. You know, it's obviously we've already talked about how you've been a mountain biker since the nineties. I started mountain biking around 90, 91 ish. So I can kind of relate to that era as well. Yeah. Uh, boy, you know, so I grew up in Fairfax, California, you know, went to school here, went to high school here. And, you know, as a kid, um, I rode my bike to school and then, you know, my parents got divorced when I was seven and we moved across town and I wanted to keep going to my old school. And so all of a sudden I was riding my bike, you know, four, five miles as a seven, eight year old. The adventure that came with that was pretty amazing. I also got hit by every type of automotive vehicle you could imagine. I mean, I, I got hit by a motorcycle car, a semi once, uh, none of them serious for me. But, you know, I just spent so much time on two wheels and, and I was in the midst of this environment that had, you know, mountains all around us. And so me and my friends just started exploring and, um, you know, I got my first bike at Sunshine Bike Shop and, you know, really just started uh, organically kind of getting into it uh, with, with my friend group, you know, and, and then uh, things kind of spawned from there. And I, I went to high school with uh, the world famous Miles Rockwell amongst other awesome local mountain bikers. And Miles was a huge inspiration. You know, all of a sudden he was, you know, racing and doing things that we didn't even know were possible on a bike. And so that made us, uh, the rest of us who were, you know, regular skilled people want to ride more and, and even think about maybe racing a little bit. So, um, yeah, kind of started, started from that ground zero Fairfax, California. So. Yeah, Miles is a legend. I mean, especially going back to the days of the Kamikaze downhill, which I think most people couldn't wrap their heads heads around what that even is today, right? Yeah, yeah, it was it was so incredible to to be there, to be a spectator, to be uh, friends with him and Gravy's mechanic, and to have a view into that world and how big it became so quickly. And you know, Miles is you know, making big bucks, giant trailer, getting helicopter rides to the top of the mountain, racing downhill, winning all these things. It was just surreal, you know, to, to see the advancement of everything, you know, from Fairfax go so quickly like that. It was just remarkable. So pretty cool. Yeah. If I remember right, it was even on ESPN two back then. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had a funny story about Miles, which I, I love. And who knows? Hopefully he hears a shout out to Miles. Uh, but there was a day at the Reebok Eliminator or the Kamikaze Downhill where I was racing the amateur, you know, on my hardtail, my Phoenix that we, we used to make. And I'm in my, you know, my Lycra and I'm working my way up the course. And he's like, hey, come from his trailer. You know, he's like, hey, you got any pads? And I'm like, nah, man, I don't have anything. You know, and he's like, here. And he gave me like his race kit. He's all, wear this stuff, man, because you're going to be going fast. I'm like, thank you. That's so nice of you, you know. So I put it on, I go up there. And Miles, if if you know, has he's got he's got big biceps, big arms, you know, and I had kind of like string bean arms. And I remember going into the first turn and those elbow pads just went straight to my wrists. <laughs> and I raced downhill all the way to the bottom with his elbow pads on my wrists, thinking, oh man. <laughs> it's just funny, but I always think of that one. Yeah, I I actually raced that course and this probably a similar, not a I was on a old specialized dump jumper M2 with the original Manitou back then right. in like 1994. So I can, I can only imagine what that would be like. Cause that's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, have bikes and race course, uh, race courses come so far since then, but still the skill that, you know, miles needed and Tomac back then and, uh, and all those giants of the sport in that day, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible stuff. Fun to watch. Yeah, as I just did an interview a couple of days ago with a show that hasn't been released yet, but it'll be released before this show with uh, Glenn Jacobs. Oh, cool. Who was the original guy that UCI hired for trail building and track building, track design in the, in the mid-90s, late 90s. And we had talked about how 1996 was really pivotal in downhilling because that's when Palmer came on the scene. And like everybody started racing not in Lycra because he was out in his motocross gear and how that changed a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it did definitely change stuff. And I remember, I don't know if I can peg the year, but I remember we had a pretty significant race at Squaw Valley in that period of time where we, we actually got to go up there and work on the course. We did a bunch of digging and stuff and, and Palmer was a huge factor in that presence in that whole scene. And it was a pretty cool thing just to, just to be on the outskirts of at that time. He definitely was a game changer, that guy. Yeah. 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 When he caught everyone's attention by almost beating Nico Vullier. Yeah. 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 That, that woke everybody up and said, wow, there's people can come from crossover, you know, and that was, that was pretty cool. Well, let's get into WTB and kind of the backstory of the brand. You know, I think before we hit, hit record, you basically stated that you were a walking uh, library or encyclopedia of WTB, the brand. Let's talk about the brand because it's really iconic. It's in my opinion, it's probably the original brand that really started giving back to mountain biking for advocacy and otherwise, and really kind of got both needing trails and needing good products. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll do my best with dates and stuff. And you know, my, my recollection is my recollection, right? I don't know if it exactly aligns with history, but it should, but you know, the thing about stories is once they get told and retold, sometimes things skew a little bit. So I'll have to give you that disclaimer. You know, I started working at WTV in 1994. I think February of 94, um, I worked at a local sporting good retailer called, it was called Marin Surplus, then it turned to Marin Outdoors. And it was a multi-sport uh, retail chain. I think there's three or four of them, um, kind of like an REI, pre-REI uh, coming into our area. And I ran the bike department and I was assembling bikes and selling bikes and bike parts. And I had a, a mechanic there, this guy, Paul, who was my guru. And he taught me about cool stuff. And he introduced me to WTV. He introduced me to Chris King. He introduced me to, you know, Fat Chance. He introduced me to all these 
really, really premium products. And I got so fascinated with that world that I wanted, I was just hungry for, to learn more and figure out more. And then, you know, he said that WTB was in the area. And so I just immediately went, went there and knocked on the door because I had this idea that I, I wanted to get hubs and that, uh, cause they were so beautiful. It was just like art, it was like jewelry. And I went and knocked on the door and my coworker who I work with today, every day, Fred Falk, fast Freddie Falk, the, the trail boss, we named a tire after him. He opened the door. He says, can I help you? I said, yeah, I was wondering if I could get a deal on hubs. I, I work at Marin Outdoors. He's like, no, no, you can't. You got to work here to get a deal. I was like, I was so, I was like so shocked. I didn't expect that response. And so I said, oh, oh, well, are you hiring? He said, yeah, come on in. And he, he invited me in. And when I stepped over that threshold, I had no idea that I would be, be embarking on this, you know, odyssey <laughs> of working at WTV. I was assembling parts in the back that day. And, uh, and then, you know, the phone was ringing. I, nobody answered it. And so I answered it and said, WTB, this is Gary. How can I help you? And, and I sold something to a bike shop on the East Coast. And he kind of looked at me and was like, wow, that was, you know, that was really good. I said, well, yeah, I could do that. I mean, if you want me to answer the phone when it rings, I can do that. And he said, yeah, do that while you're assembling stuff. And so I did that. And then, you know, really from there, the thing where, like, why don't we have a sales department? Why don't we have, you know, and this, the thing started cascade and cascade. And, uh, and here we are now. Um, so, yeah, but, it, it, you know, and then, you know, you've got the, the founders of WTV. You've got Charlie Cunningham. You've got Mark Slate. You've got Steve Potts. And then Patrick Seiler came in uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, but those guys were just, to me, they were, they were, and they still are on some of their gods to me. I just was so fascinated with who they were, were how good they were on bike, and, and how uh, curious they were to make stuff better. It was just, I mean, I, I mean, I think I was working for minimum wage, but I would have worked free. You know, I would have given them what I had just to be in the room because it was just the coolest thing ever to be in that space. It was so creative and, uh, and organic and small. Yeah, it was pretty special. So anyways, I may have gotten off track there because I get, you know, I get all whimsical when I think about that stuff. But, uh, yeah, those, those guys, um, you know, got things going and it was basically, Mark, Charlie, and Steve uh, doing the thing, and, and Mark and Charlie were designing stuff. And she, Steve is this multifaceted, multi-skilled person with his hands, so he can weld, he can he can do anything with his hands. And so he was the fabricator. He ended up being the the person that was welding all of our frames because we had a whole frame production thing going on for a long time. But they all had these pieces of puzzle. Um, but what they didn't have is business skills. They they just didn't, that wasn't their acumen. And so, so they knew this young mountain biking lawyer from Berkeley named Patrick Seidler, and they needed his help because they were trying to figure out how to manage this uh, opportunity with specialized who wanted to work with them for design. And they didn't know how to step into that. And so Patrick came in and he's like, yeah, I can help you with this. And so he put together a, a contract to engage the business. And then they said, Hey, if you could, if you could be the business head of this this four legged animal, you know that'd be great because we we don't know what we're doing. And and so the thing took off with those four principles as as our leaders. And then we had a small group of us that were, you know, and some were in charge of production, some were in charge of shipping, some were in charge of sales, and some were in part in charge of the the documents and legal stuff. And uh, we grew from there. Yeah. 
This is going to sidetrack a little bit, but I just thought of something. And so hopefully people track with this. What are some of the things that you've seen in the industry in terms of like developments that really kind of capture your attention and have really stuck? And I've, I think of things like kind of benchmark things like the introduction of disc brakes or the introduction of a dropper post. Like what kind of stuff have you seen on your end that really kind of both through WTB, but just generally speaking, how bikes have been made better since that era to today? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you put your finger on it. Those, those were huge advancements um, that were actually, to me, a little farther down the line. But, uh, you know, tire size, uh, before we go into diameter, but width, you know, there was, there was a time where, you know, a, a 1.95 tire was the tire that we all used on our rigid bike. And then, and then we went out to 2.1 and it was huge. And then we went to 2.2 and then, and then that evolution of air volume and, uh, lowering your pressure and how that changed the performance of the bicycle, uh, was massive. Um, at the time, especially when we were all rolling rigid. Um, so, so that was, that was huge. You know, I think of some of the things that Charlie, uh, innovated, uh, you know, Charlie, I mean, he's a genius and I don't know how many geniuses I've met in my life, but I knew the moment I met him, he's a genius because he was so absorbing of your comments. When you spoke, he listened so acutely. I'd never been listened to um, before, like when Charlie listened to me and I thought I was like, wow, I ever really think about what I say. Cause he, he seems like this makes me feel so important, but he's just, just such a sponge, but Charlie, he did things like little toe flip, you know, when we were all using flat pedals with cages, he created that little toe flip that now on a flat pedal is just designed into the pedal. But before that they, they weren't, and he created that little flip to, to kick it up. You know, he took the spacing from uh, a road spacing, uh, you know, we're down at whatever, 130, and he, he kicked it out to 135, and then he kicked it out to 142, uh, working on uh, improved triangulation for wheel, making room for more gears. Those are all things that, like, he thought of um, that that hadn't been done before. So foundational stuff that was on the bike, and some of the things have since gone, right, because we've evolved on. Now we're in boost, and, you know, there's a whole different universe that we live in for bikes, but some of the things that kind of got us out of the gates from, you know, a garage bike that would break most of the time to a bike that actually would perform and handle and all that uh, came from his mind and came from his workshop. And, you know, I think, I think uh, the people that understand the history of, of bikes and components uh, understand his place in that history, but it was just, you know, really, really crucial. So I'll go with, I'll go with, uh, Tire air volume and I'll and I'll props to Charlie on the toe flip and the rear end spacing and working on improved wheel strength through, you know, triangulation of, of wheels and equal spoke length and tension and all that stuff. Cause that was maybe it's not sexy, but it was fundamental to the progression of the sport and of of the bike. So Yeah, and I, I could be wrong, but WTB was really early into the game with 29ers since we're talking about tires and wheels. And with a, actually a, a really good tire, I think it's the Velociraptor, right? Well, no. So the, the tire that took WTV from a small garage shop to a bigger garage shop was the Velociraptor. And that was back, uh, back in the, uh, I think it was like 94, 95. But um, the, the first 29er tire ever made was the Nanoraptor. And we oh, did that that's, in That's what I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were prototyping frames and, uh, props out, you know, Mark Slate's good friend, Wes Williams from Colorado, Crescent Butte, I believe, uh, those guys were in cahoots and talking about diameter and how they could, you know, how they could 
make bikes roll over rough terrain uh, with big gaps more smoothly and better. And they said, we got to be able to do it bigger. And so, you know, the collaboration and conversation between those two and, and Mark uh, and Steve prototyping frames for that diameter, and then us using our manufacturing capabilities offshore to take this huge risk to make a 29 inch wheel when people thought we were nuts. Uh, yeah, turns out that was a good idea and it worked and it really um, kind of propelled us into a new era. Although for you know a few years there, people still, I mean, I think people still think we're a little bit nuts because we do, we do take innovative risks all the time. I think that's a bit of our responsibility in the industry on some level because we're still small, we can move quick and we are a little bit wild. But yeah, I mean, there was a few few years after that where people were just still like not not wanting to accept this this thing that we've done that we changed and uh, but it obviously is stuck. And so that was that was pretty good. But yeah, uh, Slate uh, Nano Raptor and uh, you know Wes Williams, you know, inspired the in cahoots uh, with, with the guys. So that was cool. The Nano Raptor is still available today. You better believe it is. Yeah, I I have a lot of influence over that product line and that well we dropped the Raptor because you know the uh, Jurassic Park era was fun but you know we all got to move on right so we so we took the Raptor names off of uh, a lot of our tires except for that Velociraptor of course that'll always stay there but the Nano's still in the line we 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 roll it in 29 inch 2.1 just like we did back then and then it's uh one of our anchor uh, tread patterns for our uh, gravel line and and it's just a really really popular tread it was the first. It was symbolically the first tread we ever did for gravel to kind of like, you know, moving into this new category, similar to 29 in some respect, the, the Nano was the appropriate first step there. And it was, a, it was a big win. So it's a great tread pattern. I, uh, this is a total sidebar. I was in Fruta last Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Fruta Grand Junction area. And it, I hadn't been there for at least a decade. And it was, I was quickly reminded how dinosaur heavy that region is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you say fruit, I think of Troy, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of history stuff, uh, with WTV and, um, both in innovations and, you know, advocacy and, and, and whatever else, uh, there's, there's a lot of facets to our business beyond the, the obvious of, of being a, a, a bicycle component company. So. Yeah. And that's actually what brought us together here today was to really talk about, you know, the deep history of WTB with the goal of getting more people on bikes getting more, you know, doing more in advocacy. And I don't mean advocacy in terms of like just funding projects, but I mean advocacy in, in terms of actually actual access. Cause I think yeah. that to me is the crux of everything. Like a lot of times I've said, if you get the access, the money will follow, but we got to get the access, right? Yeah. It's just like, you know, I'm a big baseball guy, but you think of the field of dreams. If, if you build it, they will come. Right. And then that, that concept is absolutely what we believe in. And, you know, I, I mentioned Patrick and Patrick's, uh, you know, the president and CEO of our company. And um, he is our visionary on advocacy. Uh, the, the work that he has done um, since the early 90s in advocacy is just an incredible legacy. And I got to say that at the time when he was talking about all these various different things, you know, I was just a, just a kid and I was I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't really like emotionally engaged with what he was talking about. I just wanted to go ride trail and I wanted to sell cool bike parts. And I was pretty simple. I, I didn't have this vision that, that he had. Um, so I really, 
you know, at the time I thought, okay, you're a little bit crazy this way. Um, but it uh, turns out just an incredible visionary and what he's, what he's accomplished is just, uh, it's just, I'm in absolute awe of, of the work, but you know, what it came from is in Marin County, as, as you're probably aware here, we have um, issues with trail use. And it's, it's so fascinating because there's so many other places in both in the country uh, in the state and in the country and the world where there's just these issues are just not there. You know, I go to Europe, people are like, I don't know, I understand why you guys can't just all get along on the trails, you know? And it might be because of the demographic of Marin County has, you know, a lot of people uh, with, you know, strong interests and, uh, uh, you know, strength and power and money and all that stuff. So we've got these various different user groups and, you know, people did not want mountain bikers on in our open space and water district lands, which are just the most incredible terrain for, for riding bikes. And so, you know, way back when I was thinking about it uh, yesterday, way back when in the, I think it was late seventies, early eighties, there was the trailside killer. And there was a, there was actually a serial killer running around Santa Cruz and uh, up here in, in the North Bay and Mount Tam and, and Point Reyes. Uh, this absolute psychopath is running around murdering people. And it was just absolutely terrible. And so what happened in that period of time is everybody stayed off the mountain because they were terrified. They were so scared. And so the mountain was open, wide open. I was, at that time, I was 10, 11 years old. So I was only in the foothills. I wasn't really playing, but in the space, but, you know, mountain bikers could, you know, the early guys, you know, the, I think of like, you know, the Joe Breezes and all those guys, I mean, they, they could go ride anywhere they wanted, anytime they wanted and not see a person and, and they had the run in the place. And then when that psychopath was put behind bars, people were like, you know, kind of came out. They're like, okay, it feels safe out there. And so all these users were back out on the trails, having a good time. And then the conflict started, you know, it was, you know, horseback riders saying, you know, bikes are scaring the horses and, you know, all these things. And, you know, it always takes, it's always a small minority that kind of creates the problem for the majority. So, you know, by the time we got to the early mid nineties, it was a highly confrontational topic in our area. And in our county, there's this thing called Measure A, which is basically how you fund the open space and how you, you know, take care of it and manage it. And, you know, there was a big vote coming up on Measure A and the mountain bike community was like, hey, wait a second. You know, we want equal access. We want equal voice. We want to, we want to see at this table and, you know, using our tax you know, tax dollars to do this, but yet we are being discriminated against. We don't have an opportunity to, to state our position. And so, you know, back then, Patrick authored this letter of, it was the Declaration of Interdependence. And we took out the back page of the Marin Independent Journal and wrote it just like, you know, just like, uh, you know, a letter of independence. And it was this really well-written letter, which I, I can send you a copy of that uh, a bunch of people in our community that believed in it uh, signed, including myself and Miles Rockwell and Susan DiMatte, and then all the founders of ETP and, and a host of other people, and just, just basically stating that we want to be at the table. And that was the first, to me, the first moment we're like, all right, we're, this is a fight. We're in this thing. We got to get, we got to get engaged in the system and understand how to do it. But it was such a difficult fight. And we were like this uh, up and coming small bike brand. And the people that were against us were kind of looking at us like, oh, you just want to, you just want to sell more parts. And it was like, well, sure, sure. Yes, we do. But 
we want equal access and we want more people on bikes. And, and we really, you know, do and uh, now and did then believe that you can save the world with bikes. There's a number of reasons why bikes are a really great solution for so many of our problems in the world. So, so we took on, you know, this whole thing, but we realized fighting for trails on the mountain was a bit of a long, long run, heavy lift and hard. And so we started to try to figure out what strategically can we do to, to make this work. And we started a nonprofit, uh, I think in 1997 called WTB TAM, and it was transportation um, alternatives for Marin. And, you know, Patrick had the vision saying, hey, you know, what we'll do is if we can get more people on bikes and using bikes for uh, transportation and having safe places to ride, we're going to have we're going to have the critical mass and then we can take it to the mountain. And so that was a pivot that we made. And we started to use the, our, our, put our voice in the trail advocacy thing into our local trail advocacy group. So the, you know, the, uh, the bicycle trails council, Marin, and, and there's also no access for bikes here. And so we started to work with those groups to work on the dirt stuff locally and focus, uh, our strategy on the pavement side of things. And, and that work that Patrick did then has really turned into something that's global now. And that's really where there's such a legacy of, of wins, both locally and, and really around the world that, that he's participated in things like Safe Routes to School. He you know, helped write the white paper on that and another thing. So, you know, the fight, the fight for the mountain trails was a pivot, but, you know, and we still are fighting it today, but we do have more trails now than we did back then, but we don't have enough. But we're using the system, you know, and we're using the resources and our advocacy partners in the area to, you know, uh, express our voice and our position. And we're definitely the company and our in our nonprofit, WTTAM, we're about doing the work rather than writing a check. I mean, we'll write a check, right? But we're we're the do the workers. And and there's space for all that because everything needs money, right? So it's it's no shade on anybody that writes a check and, and they're done. That's if that's what you can do, that's what you can do. But you know, our group are definitely roll the sleeves up and go to the meeting and express ourselves kind of group. So yeah. Well, how awesome is it that you can make a acronym TAM, Transportation Alternatives for Marin, next to Mount TAM? Right. <laughs> I know. I know. Whoever I, I'm sure that was Patrick's, but I think when that light bulb went off, it was like, that's it. That that's the one. <laughs> we'll use that. Yeah. 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 So. And I've had, I've had, uh, Vernon Huffman on from access for bikes too, because, and he's, I mean, that guy's incredible and in what he's done and what he continues to do. And, yeah. you know, just the fact that he really pushes just being a voice in the room. Like if you're not in the room, you, you just by that you're left out. Right. And they're going to purpose yeah. purposely leave you out if they want to. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. Vernon is such an intelligent guy and and patient guy and a strategist um he really has a good grip on the mission and he's a great front person for access for bikes he's also my neighbor was just on the way um but uh yeah no he, terrific guy yeah robin's awesome too his wife they, they're quite the quite the duo well and how awesome is it that you brought a lawyer on staff to run the business but the lawyer on staff actually had his finger on the pulse for everything else outside of the business that's more more generally speaking important for the community of mountain biking. And I, I like to call it wheels on dirt because it's really the, the opposition really just doesn't want to see wheels on dirt, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 No, I know that was, uh, you know, when, when 
uh, Mark and Charlie and Steve made the decision to call Patrick and bring him into the circle. Um, that was probably the best decision they ever made for, for a multitude of reasons. So, yeah. And Patrick's still, you know, still blazing trails today. And, you know, what's so great is now we're, you know, now we're a bigger global business that's been around for 41 years and he's still actively engaged and does a lot in the business. But because we've got really, really awesome people in our group, he's able to, you know, dedicate more time to advocacy, which is his true passion. I mean, you really want to see the sparkle in his eye, you know, ask him about what projects he's got his hands in right now. And it's just like, you know, get ready and, you know, he'll tell you all about it. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to, to be in the room listening to him talk about that stuff. It's uh, inspirational. So That and the fact that I've always drawn this, these parallels where like, you know, horse riders are against mountain bikes, typically, not always. I'm not, I don't want to make a gen, blanket generalization on that, but a lot of times that's the, that's the way it is or the opposition. But then when the bike was invented, they were against the bike then too. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? And you know, the thing that I think about is because, or, or, or is that there's, I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from swearing. You can. <laughs> okay. Well, there's assholes in every group, right? I mean, it's like, it doesn't matter. There's asshole bikers. There's asshole horseback riders. There's asshole runners. There's there, the, every group has a subset that are just jerks for whatever reason. You know, it's just what, it's just part of the fabric of, our society. There's wonderful people and there's terrible people. And so, you know, it's really just the folks that don't have the respect uh, uh, to accept the others uh, for, for the, the difference that they have and appreciate them. That's where the problem is. It's not the actual type of user. It's just if we can get the assholes, you know, off the trail or get them to acknowledge and accept and accommodate um, and have some humility, then, you know, we the world has been a lot smoother, but you know, that's just not how it is. <laughs> so, so you got to show up and you got to, you got to do the work. Are there, I know, I know Patrick's the one that's working on projects a lot, but are there any projects in, in the history of the, of WTB that kind of stick out in your mind as success stories or even ar- areas that really forced uh, some retrospect and learning to get right in terms of advocacy and access and trails on the advocacy side? Well, you know, the, I, I think the, you know, the, the North-South Greenway here in Marin County was one that um, took uh, decades to accomplish. And there was so many roadblocks in the way and um, so many learning moments that it seemed like, you know, and it's still not complete. There's little pieces that are still being put together, but there's, there's tons of momentum now. Everybody, everybody's on board, but before it was very few. You know, we had to dig a tunnel, a massive tunnel, uh, which now our smart train goes through. But, you know, it was, it was dealing with uh, people in uh, the, you know, because within our county, we've got all these small cities and each city has its own, you know, uh, city manager and, you know, uh, municipality that's in charge of the roads and pathways and stuff. And they all, they're not all thinking of things the same way. And so to get them all to, to align is just a huge amount of work. And so kind of understanding how to, navigate that political arena was a huge learning lesson. I know for Patrick, um, he became kind of a political player, he had to understand how to work in that environment and tie, you know, literally 13 different cities together and get them all swimming the same way to, to believe in this pathway that cuts through all of them, uh, which was, you know, it's just 
a ton of work. So I think uh, understanding that you're dealing with power brokers that don't think bikes are the solution and how to overcome that is really, really the, the challenge. And some of them had to be done through attrition. You know, you had to wait for somebody to retire and get out of that seat before, you know, for until you could actually make progress. So I think that that green way that, that we put together is is really something. And, you know, what what he did, which was genius, and it was actually something that he turned over to people for bikes, which were, you know, members of, and he sits on the board of us. We used to do these international study trips and we take various different people, the key people within these cities, we take them to uh, the Netherlands and say, check this out, check out this bicycle infrastructure. And they would just like be blown away. They would just be absolutely inspired and see that it can work and it does work. And then they would take that home. So we started to do these international trips and just take all these different people that were in a position of power and show them the a successful model. And that was a game changer. So that really broke through the ice with a lot of folks that, we, that couldn't see it. And we started doing that. We actually did that with uh, people in Taiwan and China as well um, as time went on. And it was really incredible just to show them that model that, that is working where the, all those short trips are done by bicycle. So that, that was pretty cool. And then pivoting to the, to the dirt side, you know, we, uh, and back to the Downeyville loop. Because, you know, I feel like I've been talking about Donnyville for 10 minutes, so we got to bring that back in um, or longer. But, um, you know, the Sierra Buttes Trail Stewardship, that group, which I think was founded in 2003, WTB's been an anchor member of that since the inception. And um, we have always been a sponsor uh, of some sort with them. And I guess we're going on 20 years now. And what we've done is we've, We've hung our hat on the Butcher uh, Ranch Trail, which is probably, in terms of like wheels rolling through the trail network up there, that one probably has the highest use. It's the most, it's the one you do first before you do anything else. Is like if you're going to Downhill, you got to ride, you know, the certain trail and, and, and butchers in the middle of it. So it gets tons of use. So we've been a sponsor and funding uh, work on that trail and, and shoveling dirt on that trail forever. And and, you know, now the vision has uh, evolved so much more broadly from just the slope that goes down to Downeyville up into uh, a much bigger picture. That Their project that's going right now is called the Connected Communities Project and linking, I think, 13, 12 or 13 communities together through a trail network, uh, many of which have been, you know, scorched from the crazy fires we've had to link all these communities together so cyclists can go ride through them and go spend money and help grow the economies there, the vision that the stewardship has through Greg's leadership is incredible. And all they need is 40 million bucks, you know, um, and it, <laughs> but which is a big number, right? But, you know, you just got to keep start chipping away at it and they know how to, they know how to work the system. And so, so from, from Butcher Ranch, you know, 20 years ago to now, just like, you know, trying to support this broad vision uh, up there in the Sierras is uh, something I'm really proud to be a part of. And it's, it's, you know, kind of setting it up. So, you know, families and next generations and stuff have these opportunities to ride in these beautiful places and, you know, connect with nature and, and all that. So pretty special what those, that group's doing. Well, $40 million is a, is a big number, but when you actually look at the scope and scale of what that really means, I mean, they're going from Downeyville and Quincy to Reno. Like, yeah. You know, it's not yeah. like it's, it's not like it's just the, it's just not that La Sierra region. It's the whole community, like all of it. You know, I was able to, when I was in Reno, 
you know, I obviously talked to Marty Shield quite a bit, but I went mountain biking with, um, I'm going to call him the ass, but Kurt Gensheimer, you know, and we were talking about, you know, the Reno side of that, of that community, you yeah. know, and how it's going to eventually connect all together. And that's, I mean, that, and that topic or that a project like that is perfect for the, for a conference like the International Trail Summit, because it's exactly what I think all of us kind of dream of, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ima- just imagine the Reno to Tahoe to uh, the Northern Sierra with uh, Downeyville and to Quincy and, and all those communities connected together as a, as a destination for people to ride bikes. It's just, uh, you know, the possibilities just remarkable of what could happen there. And, and there's great momentum already and there's already people showing up and, and riding in pieces of it. But once it's connected, and available for all user groups. You know, it's very inclusive. Yeah, it's just, uh, what a vision. It's pretty, pretty exciting stuff. Let's stay on Downeyville and talk about your initial first draw to Downeyville and why, why you guys showed up in Downeyville. Like what, you know, what took you there versus not anywhere else in California, I guess, or in the West. You know, it's funny. I was so, you know, way back when I was like assembling brakes and stuff in the back of WTB, Mark Slate, uh, one day, he was like, Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, working. He's like, No, you're not. Be ready. I'm picking you up at 4 a.m. And I'm like, Okay, boss. Like, whatever you say. So Mark picked me up and threw me in the back of his truck. And I knew we were going to go riding. Um, I thought we were like going to go riding in Auburn or something. I didn't really know where we were going, but I was ready to go. And he drove me all the way up, stopped in Nevada City. And he says, This is Greg. Uh, we're going to go ride in Downeyville with Greg. And so we all rolled up there and I get in the car or the truck with Greg Williams and start rolling up. I'm I'm like, Hey, how's it going? And we, we meet and uh, we go and we basically descended Downeyville together, the three of us. And it was a life-changing ride for me because it was like one Mark Slate's gnarly on a bike. I mean, he was like banging elbows, pushing me off the trail. Greg is, you know, I've always daydreamed of having like a, coffee table book of people that i love to follow on a bike who's and greg's like one of the people i love following because he comes from bmx and he can jump he can tabletop and do stuff in front of you that just blows your mind there's there's parts of trails where there's like scuffs in the uh, bark like eight feet high from his tire he goes up there and, and knocks the bark off you know it's like it's incredible and so anyways we rode and uh and that, that day kind of sealed me. I was like, this is, I had no idea this place even existed. And, and I think Mark was just like, I think these two guys are going to get along pretty good. I don't know how Mark and Greg met and I still don't, but, um, you know, so I said, I, I'm coming back up. And so my wife, Elisa and I were, became quick friends with Greg and, you know, we were sleeping on his floor and going riding, um, and, and Nevada city and Downeyville, uh, every weekend we could. And, you know, and then he started his business, you know, he had this bike shop and then he wanted to do shuttles and then this whole thing grew and we just wanted to be a part of that and enjoy it uh, with him. And so it just kind of grew from there. And uh, he actually, way back when, um, he invited me to be his business partner. And at the time I was going to business school and I did a study and I'm like, here's a study that shows that you don't need me as your business partner. <laughs> I said, you're you're a principal you don't need a partner you need uh, a really talented team of people that work for you um but it's not a it's a, it's not a two-headed dragon and uh so he was like wow okay so anyway that's what took took us up there and then once uh once he said hey we're gonna run a, we're gonna do a race um and it was called the, uh it, it used to be the coyote adventure company so it was the coyote classic was the first uh race and i said well we're in like i don't know 
how to do a race, nor did he really. Um, I said, but we're in, we're your sponsor, we're your title sponsor and whatever you need. And, uh, and then it just kind of kept snowballing from that moment. And, you know, we got better as a uh, sponsor and, uh, you know, that's where we were showing up and we were just basically helping run the race with him. And every year we learned and got better at it and brought in people that it's like, Oh, we need a timing team. Oh, we need, you know, uh, we need, uh, people for, you know, emergency we need, you know, and we just started to like grow and grow and grow. And now it's turned into something so much bigger. And so, yeah, that's what, that's what brought me up there. That's what keeps me going up there. I'm up there every year. Love it. You know, my wife and I go ride um, e-bikes up there every summer for at least a week. I host uh, ride camps with a lot of our top customers up in that area. And because it's such an inspirational place where it's like chugging Kool-Aid, you go there and you say, look at this, look at this place, look at this example of, of trail advocacy community, you know, and it's just like, you go there, you don't know anything, you leave, you get it. And uh, now you want to do, you want to bring that kind of thing back home to it, to your, to your community. And so that's, that's what that place is, you know, all about. So love it. You know, communities like that are so magical and so awesome for our sport. Like for me, that I, I equate this. I've still yet to be to Downeyville or go to Downeyville, and I'm, I'm, I got to change that. And I, you know, I was so close to Reno last week, but obviously that it's a little early, and there's been a lot of snow this year. <laughs> that's a, that's an understatement. There's so much snow up there; it's ridiculous. Yeah, so <laughs> melt. But that community to me in the Midwest or the Upper Midwest is Copper Harbor, and I'm sure you've heard of Copper Harbor, and that's the same thing. Like, oh yeah, yeah. My first trip there, I was like scratching my head about how can I bring? Okay, how much elevation do they have here? Okay, they have 600 feet elevation or roughly that. Okay, I live in a community in you know south south uh, west Wisconsin that has the same kind of topography, same kind of elevation, and it's not nearly as magical as this place in Copper Harbor. How can you bring that back here, right? And that's, and that's, I think it's so good for other people to see that. So just like you said, they can take what they see in that community of Downeyville and bring that back to whatever it is community that they're in. Yeah, totally. I mean, we've got like, you know, Mark Weir, who I'm surprised I've gone this far without talking about him, but, um, you know, he's another one where he's, I mean, I think I'm about to embark on my 30th year with MHP and he's on his 25th or something like that. But Mark is like, he's bought a home up in Gray Eagle, which is on the uh, other slope of Downeyville. And, you know, that's basically like, a, in a way, it's like a, a, our, our, you know, product development office up there. It's like we're up there in his garage, you know, uh, all the time, you know, writing, talking about product. We, ha we have offsite meetings there, kind of like to get everybody together and get away from everything and focus and ride and connect and stuff. And um, yeah, it's just, when you say Downeyville, it's not just that little tiny town um, in the bottom of that valley. It's it's that whole area, um, but it's easiest. Most people get Downeyville and they know that, um, but it's the whole area and the whole other slope kind of going toward that whole connected uh, communities project is just uh, unbelievable. And Mark's like, you know, made it um, his home and, you know, talk about somebody like, <clears throat> I think, uh, Kurt, uh, uh, angry single speeder who we were with Seattle last week. I mean, I think if you got, if you get Kurt and Mark on a ride up there, you know, um, they know, they know where the goods are. It's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty fun time. Be ready to work hard and bonk and crack <laughs> and steal light all in one day. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. if you get those two together and ride, you're probably going to get your legs torn off. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I have the wisdom to know that if I'm going to be riding, um, 
with characters like that. It's going to be on an e-bike at this point. I don't have what it takes to, to crush it for 10 hours with Kurt. That guy's just a monster. And we're, you know, he pains his middle name. I mean, he's, he's like, you want to, you want to, you want to feel hollow? I'll, I'll hurt you. You know, let's go. We'll go forever. You know? And so now you gotta, you gotta pick your spots with those guys. Usually I'll like start a ride with them and then, you know, I'll see him at the end. <laughs> so. Let's pivot into an area that I like to call a famous failure. And I do this mainly because I think it really helps humanize the fact that in order to learn, you got to like experiment, try things, stuff doesn't always work out. But with that, you get a lot, you get extra, you get like a boost in learning, you know, and that could be anything, right? You know, it could be on the advocacy side, it could be wherever. Is there anything that for you personally, that when I say famous, it doesn't mean it like hit the front paper or front page of the paper. I mean, like in your mind that sticks out famous to you as something that maybe you tried personally or something that you learned from really well, you know, and, and kind of pivoted and says like, well, that didn't work that way. So let's try this way. Well, I, uh, we have a few, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I feel like a role that WTB has had within the industry is to be an innovator. And, um, so we're always trying new things and just, just, you know, like the, like the 29 inch tire was a win. Right. But along that path, there's certainly things that in hindsight, we're like, Oh man, I can't believe we did that. And the one that comes rushing forward is uh, this grip called the padlock grip. And it, um, it was solving a problem that few had. And if you're going to make a consumer product, you gotta, you gotta solve problems for um, most people, not just a few and, and not to take anything away from the idea because the idea is sound, it works exceptionally well. But what it was is, uh, is you basically had to cut off the end of your handlebar at a 45 degree angle or so, right? So it's like, wait, I have to cut my handlebar at an angle. And then you slide this grip on and it locks onto that angle with that absent space and makes it so that grip just cannot move on the handlebar because it's fixed kind of like a puzzle piece onto the handlebar. So conceptually, internally, for our athletes at the time, I was like, oh, this is great. This thing's not moving. But oh, man, did we get roasted by the industry because guess what? You know, a lock-on grip uh, with the bolt on the clamp does the job good enough for most people. And so so we solved the problem that you had and we got roasted. And for me, as a WTB head of sales, uh, as a storyteller, who's somebody who gets up in front of a lot of people um, all the time and talks about our products and why they're a good solution, uh, I had to get up there and tell people about that grip. And uh, people were like, okay, Gary, sure, sure. But then, you know, a year or two later, after everybody's like giving it a go and it's been a massive failure in the consumer market, people were like, so Gary, how's that padlock grip going? <laughs> so, so that one, yeah, that was, that was a pretty big fail. But, uh, you know, I think of other things that weren't necessarily failures, but things that I learned early at WTB is, you know, making, making products that are solutions for customers to a large degree need to be uh, obvious and visible to a degree. So uh, a long time ago, um, you know, Charlie figured out how to stash a pump inside your seat post, right? And so it was super cool because it was like clean, you know, it wasn't sitting there connected externally to your bike and whatever, but it's like, you couldn't see it. Nobody knew about it. So nobody would ever buy it from us because it was absolutely invisible. And um, so, so that one was kind of a, a funny one and not a failure, but kind of a thing that we recognized early on um, was we used to make the system called Grease Guard and Grease Guard 
was a system where you can uh, shoot grease into your um, bearing component, lubricate it, and basically overhaul your bearing system and wipe off the grease without taking anything apart, which is great. And the system worked extremely well. And the bearing quality, the bearings that we put in there were really nice, but it didn't quite catch on because what we figured out with people is they kind of, they want to use something and then they replace it. And it kind of goes into a whole cascade of consumer mindset with, with waste. And that's a whole different topic, but it was kind of a, a moment uh, as time went on, we're like, man, people would rather just, you know, either get a new thing or, or, or put new bearings in. They didn't really catch on to this long-term maintenance concept. So that wasn't a failure. It was just really not matching up with consumer behavior and not getting uh, able to kind of like turn that tide with people. Another one, which now I'm on a roll. Uh, we, we had a, uh, with tires, you know, we talk about tire sizes. We say, oh, it's a 2.3. It's a 2.5 when this is the inch thing, right? And if anybody has ever put like a tape measure to the tire, they'll quickly go, well, wait a second. That's not 2.3 inches. That's, you know, something different. And so that inch measurement thing with bicycle tires, mountain bike tires is, is grossly inaccurate. And they're not, you know, a, a 2.5 from WTB is not the same size as 2.5 from a competing brand or whatever. So we said, hey, let's use, we came up with this system called the Global Measurement System, GMS, where it basically was a metric showing you casing size and outside tread width, just like automotive, right? And so this will give you an accurate description of what this tire size truly is. And so we said, this is it. And we started to propagate that because it's more accurate. And, you know, we even got some of our, our, our great business partners like, you know, QVP, the big distributor in the U.S. was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. We'll list that like that. that that's good for the, good for the customers. Uh, we started putting on the set of our tires and people revolted. They just like, we said, instead of this being a, a 2.1, it's a 4752. And they were just like, what is this? I, I hate you. Just give me a 2.1. And so we had to like pull back and, you know, we have it printed uh, in black on the inside, on the side of our casing of our tires. But um, that was one where just people would not accept this metric sizing thing. And so anyways, so there's a handful of them. And uh, I would imagine because we're risk takers, there'll be more down the line, but that's okay. That's kind of part of the deal, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, industry industry standards with with the mountain bike community has definitely been an interesting path to follow, even from the outside looking in. Yeah, like right now that the hot topic, which I'm sure you're aware of, even though I don't know if you have any products that have anything to do with it, is internally routed through the headset cable routing. <laughs> like people are just losing their minds over that, which I, I honestly don't blame them because if you want to replace your headset bearings, do you really want to rebleed your brakes? No, you don't. Yeah, I know. Well, it's because the aesthetic is so clean, right? I mean, it looks like when the finished product is sitting in front of you, it's like, well, that's nice looking. But from a mechanical uh, uh, standpoint and service standpoint, it's an absolute nightmare. And yeah, and I, you know, it's the word standard in and of itself, the bike industry is, and we, we participated in it. And, you know, uh, we aspire to like organize and, and get people to be going the same way with sizes and standards, but ultimately, you know, you can just say one day, okay, this is a standard. And then, you know, and then when you've got, you know, six of them pointing at the same thing, everybody's upset. Um, so yeah, I know it, it's a, it's a bit of a mess. 
I think our, our industry could learn maybe from, from some, some other industries and how to clean up some of that stuff. Um, because especially for, you know, shout out to all the mechanics out there in the world, but for the mechanics who are, you know, jumping from one season to the next, and they've got this next standard that they're dealing with. They're trying to make that thing connect to something that was made four years ago with some different standard. I mean, it's like, how could you not turn into an absolute pessimist, you know, <laughs> just and start to hate everybody and everything because of all the problems that it creates on your workbench every day. I, I get it. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, to me, it's kind of surprising that the, the pump didn't catch on, although now it wouldn't probably be a thing because of dropper posts. But like now there's also the whole thing in the industry with, which I agree with this, of like, you know, having a tool inside your steer tube or now with certain yeah. bike manufacturers putting a uh, down tube storage in, which I have, which I have two mountain bikes that have down tube storage. And I absolutely love it because I have to think less about what I'm taking out of my ride. Yeah, no, that, that level of industrial design that's going into, you know, tool, multi-tools into frame storage, into head tubes or, or, or steer tubes or, or bottom brackets or, uh, you know, we're, we've got stuff for connection to our saddles, like all that stuff is amazing. I love it. Anything, any way you can take stuff off your body and have it connected to your bike in a meaningful, efficient way, and then be quickly accessed. So you're more free, but you have everything in case you've got a problem. I'm a big fan of that because carrying stuff around gets old on long rides, you know, but you know. Yeah, when, am I am I running a fanny pack right now? It's just about everything you can ever imagine. Yeah, I am. Is there some redundancy? Yeah, there is. Because I'm always thinking it's the dad in me. Probably I'm always thinking about running into somebody who's in trouble and wanting to be able to help them. And you know, I've had that circumstance, um, but it, it's few and far between. So um, I'm always carrying something, thinking I'm going to help somebody, and it rarely happens. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, do you have any particular products? We've talked about that, especially like the Nano Raptor. But is there any particular products at at WTB that that you're proud of in terms of like how it really took off or what it or what problem it it really solved? I mean, I know when I think of WTB, the two things that come to mind for me are tires and especially saddles. You know, you guys yeah. have really good yeah. seats. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, there there's it's it, the question's an interesting one because there's things that inspire me personally from my connection to the bicycle because i'm very much a cyclist uh, very intimate with with the bike and then there's things that have had you know large-scale um commercial success you know and and sometimes those are different but uh yeah i mean most most people know us for tires and cells and those are our two biggest product categories and i think about what brought me into it i mean are those those classic hubs that inspired me when that mechanic paul showed them to me back in the day or the collaboration that we did with Chris King for a grease guard headset with them. I mean, that just, I mean, it just, it just made such an everlasting effect on me. So the, those early products or a roller cam brake, which, you know, really was a piece of art, all those early old school products hold a special place in my heart. I think about the gravel market, the gravel community and the, the tires that we've, uh, continually put out that are kind of matching up with the evolution of the category. I think we've been pacing really well with that and both on the competitive side and also on the more adventure side of things with increased air volume and, and all that. I think we've done really well there. You know, now, now that I'm 
I'm 50 now. You know, I started, I started when I was 20, which is crazy. I've been there so long, bit of a unicorn, but now, you know, I'm, I'm spending, you know, I ride just about every day, but I'm on my e-bike now and I love it. And I, and I have no problems with that. I know that can be a contentious topic, but we're making uh, e-bike specific product now from the ground up rather than like taking something that we've made for maybe enduro use and saying, yeah, this is an e-bike product, but we've made these new wheels called HTZ wheels that are such a good solution because people are beating up equipment. So like just thrashing EMTB bikes, right? And so making stuff that's like inspired from our experience on motorcycles and kind of overbuilding stuff, knowing how the e-bikes being used, especially, you know, Mark, we're so close. It's kind of foundational in the category there that we've made some stuff that's just matches up with the abuse that people are putting the equipment through. So I'm really proud of, you know, like the HTZ wheel system because they just are made for people to thrash them and they're going to take the abuse. So I'm proud of that. So there, you know, there's a few different places uh, on the game board with our product line that, you know, sometimes it's commercial success. Sometimes it's inspiration. Sometimes it's just like, I think really the innovation matches the moment really, really well. So I don't know if I answered that well, but that's what you get from me. <laughs> that's perfect. Cause everybody's going to answer something like that, something like that differently. And this is another yeah. uh, topic I go into it with literally everybody on the, uh, I think, I, I think I have, maybe, I think I can think of one person that I haven't asked this question to, but mm-hmm. what do you, what do you look for in a mountain bike community? Like what kind of amenities or what things, like if you're going to you know, go on a vacation or even, you know, it doesn't, you're probably not going to move, but if you were going to move somewhere, like what kind of things do you look for in a good mountain bike? trail community you know i look for a really good trail system so you can connect uh, multiple different routes and so you can kind of keep discovering new rides so you don't kind of get stuck in the same thing i think the most important thing is a really incredible bike shop community so like you know having shops that you know, regardless of brand of what they're telling is like having a shop where people come together and, uh, and, you know, as a meeting point, you know, it's like people might park there and ride from there. Um, that kind of thing. Beer is super important to me. I mean, it's like, Hey, I want to go have an awesome ride. And then I want to come back and have a beer and share, share a good conversation with people that, you know, uh, love bikes. And so awesome trails, great shops, you know, good, good beer. And, and, and that builds, you know, to me, it kind of builds uh, community. And I'll tell you, uh, back to my hometown, Fairfax, actually I live in Woodacre just west of there, but back to Fairfax, we've got that. And, you know, it wasn't always like that. We've always had a few good bike shops, but now we've got two, well, more than two, but two anchor bike shops. And one of them, uh, Split Rock Tap and Wheel has turned into like this hub for, the the riding community to uh connect uh, take off for a ride have a really good ride on all the various different trails we've got around here come back for a beer they've got great beer and food and so that kind of thing you know and then having everybody come together and everybody's happy and having a good time to me is is the core and it can be you know it doesn't have to be like that it can be very remote too i mean it doesn't have to be easy access to get to i mean some of the best places to ride uh, in the U.S. are kind of hard. They're a bit of a, you know, you got to, you got to get there, you know, whether it's like, a, you know, shooting out to Moab or going to, you know, Downeyville or, or wherever. Sometimes there's a real significant drive involved for people, but 
having uh, having that infrastructure of trails, uh, shops, beer, food, <laughs> and sometimes a really good place to camp, kind of make it all go for me. So, uh, yeah, that's what I say. Perfect. You're not the first person to say many of those things. I know it's kind of the obvious formula, but that's, I mean, it's, uh, I don't think it's so unique really. Yeah. Everybody has their own twist on it though, which is why I keep asking that question. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, with yeah. that, do you have any, uh, Gary Gleason words of wisdom or closing comments and thank yous that you'd like to wrap this one up with? Uh, well, first, thank you for inviting me, uh, to join you today. That's uh, it was a real, real fun getting together with you and hanging out, you know, shout out to, all my people at WTV, you know, I work with just, it's just a, I mean, we're family, you know, we're just like a group of people that have a common goal of running the business, but we have such a good time together and we go all around the world together and we adventure and ride, we do business and through thick and thin ups and downs, we're all like kind of in this thing together. And we've got this, like this core group of people that have been there for a long time. And it's such a unique, special uh, thing that we're doing. So they all know who they are, but we're, we're a really tight knit family. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just coming off a of sea otter and, you know, and my crew's now up the TDS race up in uh, Nevada city, but you know, we all just like, we never skip a step when we come together and, and never have problems. We always have a good time and we're very high function productive. So, so to them and, and, and to, uh, you know, to the advocates out there, you know, for the people that are doing the hard work, um, I got the shout outs to the People for Bikes community, uh, which we're members of, uh, Cycling Industries Europe, which we're members of, all the people that are like doing work to get more people uh, on bikes safely. Those are the pioneers and those are the people that are doing the grunt work to make it so you know, the rest of us can go out and enjoy themselves on bikes. And so I, I give a, a shout out to, to the advocates, you know, without them, you know, we'd be, we'd be riding in fewer places and we'd have fewer people on bikes and, you know, the world really can be saved with more people on bikes. So it's a, it's pretty important stuff. Yeah. Did you see the new movie that's coming out shortly that Anhill Films did? I think People for Bikes is part of that with the engine inside it's called. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a trailer for the trailer. It I should say the movie's not out yet, but yeah, the trailer. Yeah. I saw the trailer and I got, I got tingles. So they, uh, they did a great job. Cause I was like, you know, that feeling when you see a trailer, you're like, Oh man, this, this is going to touch me right in here. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that. When I saw that trailer, I was, I think I saw it last, must've been a week ago, Saturday or something. And, uh, we have a really core group of people where I live that are really into getting people on bikes. And I texted to those people. They're also into having good movie premieres and having good movie screenings. And so like we immediately went into work mode of how we can get a screening of that in my community. So we're working on that. It's probably going to be in go. July, but it's such an important thing. It is. It really is. It really is. Well, Gary, let's wrap this one up. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. It's a, it's a Friday uh, morning for you. You probably have a whole bunch of more meetings and stuff to deal with yet today and some other stuff. and. It's, a, it's Friday afternoon for me where I am in Wisconsin. So I'm going to, I'm going to go get on a bike before I have to go pick up my kids from school. <laughs> I really appreciate all yeah, this. So no. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, Josh. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, I appreciate what you're doing and, um, yeah, I'll, uh, look forward to paying attention and listen to more of your podcasts as they come up. Uh, I think you're onto something real good here. So thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you are listening to the Trail Effect on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustcenter.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustcenter.com will get you to Cooley Creative, so check it out. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the Affiliates tab at the Trail Effect website where you will find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which help keeps this thing going. Use the code TRAILPOD at checkout for a 20% discount at both Trail One Components and Cattle Mountain Apparel. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>